episode 376, Interoperability, Who's Who and Doing What. Today, I speak with Lisa Berry. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Interoperability. Let's just review a few key points that probably everybody listening knows, but certainly bear repeating because they matter. I don't want to dig into the technical or regulatory really details of interoperability. That is above my pay grade. But I want to talk about the really important stuff that maybe doesn't get talked about a whole lot because you say the word interoperability and it's like the magic word that transports the unwary into the land of shadow and smoke and mist. It's like a self-published YA novel half the time. But let's start here. First of all, consider that a lot of healthcare these days is conceived of as a scattering of micro moments. It's not even like we think of patients one at a time. We think about patients one ICD-10 code at a time. And we think about those ICD-10 codes in 20-minute increments whenever a patient happens to show up in clinic. The average Medicare patient these days sees five specialists and more than one PCP a lot of times. So we're not only breaking that patient down into codes per minute or something, but this is further broken down by clinician or practice. Now consider that everybody knows. And when I say everybody knows, I mean it's inarguable at this point. Health happens at the whole patient level, at the whole person level, more accurately. It happens at the community level. 80% of patient outcomes are going to derive from what that patient does when they leave the office and whether they are able to and health literate enough to construct a reconciled treatment plan for themselves from the bits and pieces of information they've received scattered all over the place. You know, in Star Trek, when someone gets into the transporter to beam down to a planet and their whole body splinters into like a gajillion little pieces, that's how our healthcare industry treats patients. They are frozen in that moment and rarely, if ever, become whole on the other side. So when we talk about interoperability, what we're really talking about is a means to an end. What we are discussing is creating the ability to treat the whole patient or heaven forbid, consider the whole community because we have enough data that we can accurately and adequately see the whole picture. We are able to avoid prescribing a treatment that is dangerous to the patient, inefficient, duplicative, or low quality, which is what happens over and over again. It's no amazing surprise that our healthcare industry wastes one in four dollars we spend and doesn't net outcomes that are great in almost any respect when compared to other countries. Let me say this more bluntly, as if that wasn't already pretty blunt. If I don't know relevant and important details about my patient, then I cannot consistently deliver care that is high quality, safe, or cost conscious due to service duplication or uncoordinated care. I mean, how is anybody supposed to deliver evidence-based care when a lot of evidence may or may not be missing? So basically, without interoperability piping in the right patient information, I cannot succeed in any risk-based arrangement, right? Like if care provided is consistently lower quality, uncoordinated, unsafe, or inefficient, how am I supposed to optimize my care delivery? Said another way, interoperability is essential for anybody who wants to succeed in a value-based arrangement. I need all the data on my patients and I need it in a way that I can separate the signal from the noise. Of course, getting 40 pages of duplicative soap notes that are semi-accurate and that no one bothers to look at is just unhelpful. <laughs> Quick counterpoint, FFS, fee-for-service, loves siloed data. 
You know how much money everybody talks about could be saved if we eliminate duplicative services? Well, that's how much some fee-for-service health system is going to lose if you make it easy for clinicians to see that the patient already got that CAT scan. So in sum, interoperability is essential to high-quality, safe, and efficient care. A mark of a health system or provider practice who is really committed to patient outcomes is going to be their commitment to shared data. The world has moved from a, hey, you're permitted to share data if you really want to, to a, you are obligated to share your data. And right now I am loosely quoting Mickey Tripathi, who is the ONC's national coordinator and also the guy in charge of TEFCA and implementing the provisions against information blocking that was in the Cures Act final rule last year. Today, I am speaking with the perfect person about interoperability, and that would be Lisa Berry, who is the CEO of Civitas Networks for Health, which is a national collaborative working to improve interoperability in this country to improve health. Since interoperability is a huge topic, what I wanted to understand from Lisa most particularly are who are the roster of players in the interoperability space? Like, what is going on there? Lisa told me that there are four main groups of interoperability folks, EHR systems, APIs, HIEs, health information exchanges, both profit and nonprofit, and then others like clearinghouses, etc. Those four, which we talk about in some detail today. We also discussed Larry Ellison's bold proclamation that Cerner is going to build one national medical records database. It's almost like Larry made it through the welcome to the healthcare briefing packet that his team gave him and immediately concluded that the interoperability problem is a technology problem, not a business case, fee-for-service, workflow, no universal ID, human, organizational, or government problem. Lisa adds some fidelity there. Link in the show notes to Larry's exact quote. Also, Tefka, we talk about today, what it is, what it's not. A short version, it's a framework so that no one can say they won't share data unless they get in trouble in some way. At the same time, it's not going to solve, as Lisa puts it, the last mile of interoperability, meaning it's not going to put the right information in the right clinician's hands at the right time. It just governs getting data from one organization to another organization, but kind of has nothing to do with the clinical workflow, so to speak. The Civitas Networks for Health Annual Conference, by the way, is coming up on August 21st to 24th. Link in the show notes if you are interested in going. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Lisa Berry, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. One thing that you have said that I thought was super intriguing is the idea that value-based care depends on participants in value-based care being interoperable. Yeah, absolutely. Before I was the CEO of Civitas, I worked at the CMS Innovation Center, which is the Medicare home for value-based care models and innovative payment models. And I worked on value-based care, really focusing on independent primary care physicians and practices in the comprehensive primary care plus model. Very quickly, it was clear to me that, first of all, it's really hard to do value-based care models without data. Number one is data. And the second piece is you have so many different players and they really have to go to exchange that data information appropriately at the right time for the right purpose. And it's still not happening here in 2022. Mid-2022, we still have so little data flowing to the right places. Without that information, without that insight, without those pieces of clinical and non-clinical information going to the right people at the right time, you really have a hard time making significant improvements and achieving the goals of those value-based care models, which is high-value primary care and high-value healthcare in general. You said it's really important to exchange the information at the right time for the right 
purpose to have these insights. Can you give an example of that? What is something that value-based care is going to fail unless somebody knows something? Yeah, one of the canonical examples from health information exchange proper is, of course, duplicated care. One of the easiest, lowest hanging fruits of um, many sort of value-based care payment models is let's not have duplicate imaging. It's easy to measure. We know it costs a lot of money. The patient has been to a bunch of settings in different healthcare systems, and they may have imaging or results or procedures that are just simply not available to, to that clinician or provider in that setting right there in front of them. So that's the, the canonical example is, and one of the easiest things we can very quickly say, this is a great cost savings that doesn't change quality and maybe makes quality even better is to not have duplicate imaging procedures, things like that. So that's an easy one, right? But now you get a little bit more complex when you talk about care gaps, identification of care gaps, care coordination, follow-up. And that's really, really important to make broader decisions about how to improve quality and reduce costs and deliver high-value care. So many examples here of what that might look like considering that the average Medicare patient these days sees something like five specialists and sometimes multiple PCPs. It is no wonder that there's so often contradicted drugs causing all kinds of side effect cascades, for example, which at the personal level can be devastating, right? Like a patient who suddenly develops, in air quotes, dementia, but it's really a side effect of their non-optimal taking 12 drugs polypharmacy that no one has right-sized because no one really knows the extent of it. Effectively, if you're trying to do value-based care and you have all these patients running around with all of their information in silos and you cannot coordinate care and there's duplicated stuff going on all over the place, that is a very expensive, not particularly fruitful way to try to get your shared savings award. That's right. Moving on here, you have said that there are four kinds of companies that are getting into the interoperability space. And this is really interesting because it seems like there's so much going on. And every time you turn around, there's some new entity popping up that has something to do with, with being interoperable. So it was really helpful to me to hear you categorize parties involved in interoperability in, into four distinct categories. Why don't we talk about the first one, which is EHRs? Yeah. So, you know, EHRs, the EHR industry is obviously dominated by two to three very large players. With EHRs, they are generally in sort of closed loop systems. You have specific installs that are specific to a, a hospital or a health system. And interoperability, in my opinion, is sort of a second tier feature that has been added or bolted on as regulations and requirements have come into play. So you see with Epic and with Cerner and with others, systems like Care Everywhere and Share Everywhere that are to my sort of perspective, add-ons, and they they don't allow everything to be shared. They let specific things be shared in specific contexts. Now, there are some new news, which we'll talk about in a little bit around Tefka and Epic, but for the most part, that's how I view EHR-based interoperability. The history of this whole thing is that EHR systems were initially built to be cash registers. People call them the glorified cash registers, but that was their initial function for sure. They were helping with billing and they were built in the image of their customer to a large extent. So they become highly customized for each individual customer, which basically means everybody's got their own little thing going on. You know, despite the fact that it's a common vendor, if you will, everybody's got their 
instance so customized with their own databases and their own ways to do this and that, that then when someone said, hey, you guys should share data, it becomes very difficult to do so. And as you said, it's sort of an add-on, but it's really hard to share data when there's nothing that's standardized amongst the two data sets. Yeah, I think that's the point. I mean, as, as we know, there's sort of technical interoperability, which is like the pieces fitting together. And then there's semantic interoperability. Are we saying the same things in the same way? When you have so much customization, semantic interoperability really becomes an issue, I would say. Yeah, I keep hearing examples like we put it in kilograms per whatever and they use pounds, but it's the same field. So like somebody puts a two in there and in one institution, it means two kilograms and in another institution, it means two pounds. And like you can go horribly wrong with if that is somebody's getting a weight-based chemo drug or something. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think in general, you know, EHRs also really replicate a paper-based workflow. I'm sure you've heard that before as well. In many of your conversations, so many of our health IT systems are simply replicating almost step-for-step previous paper-based workflows that really we have moved so far beyond them or we should have moved so far beyond them at this point. One great example is that one of the basic building blocks of technical, of healthcare interoperability right now is consolidated clinical documents. And these are really documents, right, versus data elements. And we are in the middle of this evolution in health IT interoperability from moving documents around electronically to actually exchanging individual data elements. You may have also heard people talk about the U.S. core data for interoperability. That is sort of the next generation of healthcare, health IT interoperability that breaks down specific data elements, right? We want to go into sort of specific, well-defined, standardized data elements versus complicated clinical documents. We want to, again, move away from continuing to replicate paper-based workflows in healthcare and just make it electronic, which is kind of, that's kind of how I would describe where we are right now with EHR-based interoperability. Just to reiterate what you just said, in the past, it's always been scan the PDF and send it over here. And what you wind up with is 40 pages of soap notes and then you just send that massive document with all kinds of duplicative information over the fence, so to speak, and then somebody else has to go on an Easter egg hunt to find the one clinical value that they're looking for, right? Like 100%. So the idea now, the idea would be instead of just porting around these whole documents, if we just send over quant basically in fields, then if I want to know something very specific, I can just search and get that specific element. Yeah. And and like you said, many of them are duplicated multiple times, right? You often have these extensive documentation that is PDF upon PDF upon PDF, you know, again, multiple copies of the same information in a uninteroperable, essentially paper-based form, a PDF. So that's what's going on with EHRs and the struggles that, that they face there. The second group that you had mentioned involved in this interoperability space are companies who are building off of the EHRs. They're creating APIs that help move EHR data around, I'm taking it, but maybe you could explain better. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Many companies like Redox, like Zeus Health, others that are evolving and emerging in the space, Human API, et cetera, they are really trying to allow API access in and out of EHRs. APIs are serving in a sort of like, we're going to make EHR data available that can be accessed by different types of stakeholders app developers, providers, 
value-based care, ACOs, for example. You can potentially build consumer-facing or business-to-business apps that pull in standardized data via APIs for different purposes. So if I am an ACO, who do I hire so that I can get data out of the EHR systems of all of the providers in my area? Like, how does that work? Well, you would work with a company like Alidate or Care Journey, and they would make sure that you get those data when you need it at the right place at the right time. APIs don't require direct integration or one-to-one integration. Okay. And that's the power of them, right? You don't have to go and build a one-to-a direct connection or an individual custom connection. They make the data available in a standardized format without special effort. You get this API. They work with Epic, the software they come up with a way to extract these five data elements that their customers, they feel like their customers might need, right? I'm making stuff up here. (laughs) They integrate with Epic so that if a health system would like to work with that other party, they can just flip on, they don't have to do any additional development work. It's basically just opening up the door and the path exists. The power of Firebase um, APIs is that Epic already has all the information it needs to make the API available. And because of the federal regulations that are starting to move things in the space, the ONC certified health IT rules around APIs and the federal regulations around patient access, More and more Epic and other EHRs are making APIs available to developers for these purposes, like patient access. Then we have number three, HIEs, health information exchanges. Health information exchanges. It's important to really delineate the different types of HIEs. So the types of organizations who are members of Civitas, the organization I lead, are primarily nonprofit, multi-stakeholder governed entities who are really serving in a sort of data aggregator, data interoperability hub for a specific state or region. And they're often designated for that purpose by their state. They often usually work with Medicaid, with public health, with providers, with payers. And when I say multi-stakeholder governed, it means that they are governed and their data use cases are governed by an advisory council of some sort with members from different stakeholders. So there's a state government representative, there's a payer representative, provider representatives, oftentimes patients or patient advocates, community-based organizations. So really multi-stakeholder governed, they're like public-private utility-like organization. That's one category. The other category is private HIE organizations. They serve a more narrow or specific purpose. You may have heard of point-click care, collective medical, bamboo health used to be patient ping. You've got your nonprofits governed by a board. They're nonprofit. They're typically aligned with public entities like states. And the function there, because obviously states run the Medicaid program, there might be some alignment, you know, Medicaid's trying to achieve some goal and the HIE can assist with that. But then there's for-profit entities that are popping up in the space too. You mentioned a few of them. They're obviously attaining some kind of business need and trying to get people to pay for them to, to do so. And I mean, I would, just to be clear, all of these entities are part of the national interoperability landscape, but they have slightly different functions and purposes. They, they work in different ways. In the past, there's been really a view that HIEs were not going to move forward in the interoperability conversation. They were not going to be part of the future interoperability landscape. That is not the case today. They are strong and and getting stronger and their coverage is increasing and the functions they fulfill are also increasing. And so I think it's just important to note that depending on where you are, 
if you are a ACO, let's say, you may already be connected to the nonprofit HIE in your state or region, or you may not even know you're connected because there's they're sort of connected in context in the HR that your providers use. I would just also say that they really exist and grow and get better when more community members get involved. So joining a board of one of these organizations is a great way to make sure that it meets your needs and provides value to your specific area. Relative to value-based care, like what is an HIE, let's just say the nonprofit ones to start, how do they facilitate value-based care? A use case is, let's say for an ACO organization who needs to access information across different things by partnering with their nonprofit HIE organization, their state, they may be able to access a much greater data set and a much more comprehensive data set that shows care gaps they didn't know existed, shows that their patients are actually receiving care outside of the system more than they expected and really helps them close those gaps and ultimately receive better shared savings for delivering higher quality, lower cost care. So somebody got their flu shot at the pharmacy and that pharmacy is also hooked up with the HIE. So instead of getting dinged because half the population got flu shots at the pharmacy and nobody knows about it, they now have the insight to know that those individuals actually did get their flu shot and therefore they achieve their quality measure that they may not have had they not had that info. And then also these nonprofit HIEs are, are generally enhancing, integrating and coordinating with public health with Medicaid, and then also in many cases, increasingly with community-based organizations and organizations and companies who are doing social determinants of health screening and closed-loop referrals. And that information is in particular very, very important to ACOs, as you know. Let's say you have a patient who has, who the providers have a suspicion that they have unmet housing or transportation needs. There are no-shows to appointments. And so in many cases at the state level, there are initiatives through Medicaid or through other payers or providers to actually screen patients when they do see them for social needs. So saying like, what are your housing needs? What are your transportation needs? And do you have enough food? Are you getting enough to eat? What are the reasons that you're actually missing these appointments that we need you to attend? Why is, what is the reason that you're not filling your insulin, for example? Great. <laughs> Always a problem with affordability of insulin in the US. And by doing these standardized screenings and then proving through closed loop referrals that you're actually connecting someone to social services, that they're actually getting the service, they are getting the housing assistance, they are getting the food assistance, they are getting you know assistance paying for their medication, that's how you can say, not only did we, we provide these healthcare services, we also made sure that the person has the other things met in their life that they need to, to actually receive and benefit from the healthcare services. And if I am an ACO... So you're being judged on total cost of care and health outcomes, you need that to happen. Right. So what I can then assure is that if this patient keeps showing up in the ER with infections because they're homeless. I can make sure that this patient is in fact on the list to get housing so that they don't keep showing up in the ER, things like that. Exactly. This is an area that is quite frankly emerging in the interoperability space. First of all, we have sort of healthcare interoperability, clinical health interoperability. We're talking about about that before. Now we're talking about social care and integrating the the closed loop referrals and, and social care services into the system. But this is an area that HIEs, as I've described, are really starting to innovate in and make connections in to the rest of the clinical healthcare system. And is the demand there? Like, do we have lots of ACOs who are like, let me have that data, you know, or is this something where we're kind of building it and then hoping that they will come? 
Of course, it varies across the entire landscape. There are some ACOs who are leading on this front. They're saying, we can find savings by making sure people's non-healthcare needs are met. And we need the data, we need the information and the connectivity to make that happen, number one. And you have folks who are still you know, getting there. I think the bigger context is looking at both the commercial space in terms of value-based care, but also really looking, as always, towards Medicare and saying, what is Medicare doing? And if you look at the recent announcements around the ACO REACH model, which was previously known as direct contracting, and the even more recent announcements in the proposed physician fee schedule rule, which is the yearly rule from CMS about ambulatory care and um, how we pay physicians and value-based care issues, they have announced a, an evolution of the Medicare Shared Savings Program that really points in this direction as well. So everything CMS is doing is about equity, is about SDOH, and you know they are certainly pointing in that direction and saying, if you're in value-based care, you better care about what's happening outside of the healthcare setting. And the for-profit HIEs that you mentioned, they basically just for-profit versions of the nonprofits and effectively doing very similar things, or are they different in some other way? I think different in some other way. They're really fulfilling specific needs and purposes. So I mentioned point-click care, which now includes collective medical and audacious inquiry and bamboo health. And they're really focusing on admission, discharge, and transfer-like event notifications, getting them to the right place at the right time. For those interested in a deep dive there, a while ago, I interviewed Chris Klump, who explains in great detail the business use case here for the original Collective Health organization. In short, exactly like Lisa just said, it was all about notifying clinicians that a patient was in the hospital or ER, and then I think also providing support services to that patient in that exact moment. That was episode 198. Those are really critical for ACOs, right? You need to know if your patient has been admitted to a hospital somewhere. All right. So the number four kind of interoperability players that we have here are non-healthcare parties, data clearinghouses, et cetera. We'll just give one example of one of those companies with what their goal is. Change Healthcare is sort of moving claims data between providers and payers, and they're transforming it and normalizing it and making that exchange happen to enable things things like billing and measurement. It would be a myth to say that they're not part of the interoperability landscape because they are enabling a lot of interoperability on a day-to-day basis. Okay, so in sum, we have our first group, EHRs. Second, APIs that sit on top of those EHRs. Then we have number three, HIEs, health information exchanges, both for-profit and not-for-profit. And then lastly, we got other as a category. Moving on here, because I've been dying to ask what you think of the proclamation that Larry Ellison just made. Larry Ellison obviously is the founder of Oracle. Oracle just bought Cerner, which is a huge EHR system. And I don't, I'm not looking at the quote directly, but he basically got up on a podium and said, we are going to create the singular database of all healthcare information for everyone. The one patient database to rule them all. What do you think of proclamations like that? Yeah, we hear this all the time. Every couple of years, someone talks about creating the ultimate database to rule them all. It's also something that you hear from people who are coming in from outside of healthcare, especially in the technology space. And they say, we can solve this. We can create one EHR. We create a new, the best EHR in the world with all the data. And, you know, it hasn't happened yet. And I don't think it's going to happen. It's almost like Larry got the introduction to healthcare deck download from his team. And this is kind of the first response that most people will 
have. Yeah, and I can tell you my perspective here is that the difficult thing about healthcare data, we do have still have some technical interoperability challenges, of course. We have many outdated systems. But more than that, interoperability and exchange and data aggregation is an organizational and a governance problem. In particular, you know, we have 50 states in the U.S. and they all have different laws and rules, especially about health data and data privacy. And then we have differing laws elsewhere. We have federal laws. We have different stakeholders. We have providers, payers, community organizations, patients pharmacy, you name it. And these are governance problems and organizational problems and competitive problems. They're not because we don't know how to aggregate data. And so I think that's the issue here is that, you know, unfortunately, healthcare is very complicated. Larry. (laughs) Well, hopefully he'll listen to the show. The other thing that I have heard Don Lee, who works with the HIE, and one of the things that he said is that from a technical standpoint, interoperability is solved. Like we know how to do it. It's not like this is mysterious tech that we have to yet build. It's it's built. We know how to do it. The problem is, is that there's limited business case to share. You know, you've got health systems out there who are really worried about network leakage, which is a thing, right? And how you prevent network leakage is you hoard data. So it's like the tragedy of the commons, right? Like it's helpful to get the data, but it is not helpful in any way to actively share it. Is that the biggest challenge? I would tend to agree. Don and his organization are members of Civitas. And I think that he's very right in in, in that statement that there are very few technical challenges and there really are sort of these organizational and competitive and business case challenges. I think that, of course, we need to continue to make the business case for interoperability. So where I go with this, as an ex-Fed, as I say, we have to create the strong incentives, the bold incentives, and then ultimately the mandate. You've got to start with the incentives, you've got to make things happen, and then you do have to say, and now we're done with this. We are not going to hoard any more data. And I'm looking to CMS in particular, but to HHS overall, to really set bold goals and really move that forward via strong incentives. And I hope that they will do that. Well, amen to that. (laughs) How does TEFCA fit into that then? So is that a start of what you're looking for? Do you want to just explain what is what is TEFCA and how it fits into the conversation that we're having? Yeah, absolutely. So TEFCA is not an incentive or a mandate yet. TEFCA is a concept to address nationwide interoperability that was part of 21st Century Cures Act in 2016. The recognized coordinating entity, which is Sequoia, has been developing the policy and the specifics of how TEFCA will be operationalized. And where we are today is that it's been announced and many policies have been released. And then all the other details are still missing, like cost and you know the final rules around individual access and things like that. And what CMS did is they put TEFCA participation as sort of an optional part of the quality payment program for this year, which is interesting. TEFCA doesn't exist yet. You can't participate currently and you won't be able to likely until next year. TEFCA stands for Trusted... Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement. So the framework is an exchange framework. All that TEFCA really does is it tries to standardize the business rules that drive exchange between different entities. Okay, so give me an example of a business rule. Yeah, like like who is allowed to access these data and when? When are the data sent from one entity to another? If I'm hospital A in Illinois, when and how can I request data on my patient who walked into the ER from a different state? And how do I make sure that I get those data in a timely manner and that they are complete? Tefka arrives on the scene and it basically says, look, if someone is an emergency room physician and they need information, like you can't data hoard. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. So so the 21st Century Cures Act really addressed the no information blocking. It had the no information blocking rule. This is another iteration of the implementation of that and saying, not only are you not allowed information block, but here's also the technical and business case, how we're actually going to enable those technical and business cases to exchange patient information across settings. But it's a new take on making the business and technical rules easy to implement for exchange across settings. Got it. So that no one can say, oh, HIPAA, we're not going to do that. And Don't know how to do it. It puts parameters around that this is allowed and someone in another state can't demand the ER doc, like their hospital sign a BAA first or tee up six weeks of lawyer conversations. In these circumstances, you just know you can share that information and everyone is covered. Exactly. <laughs> Last question. What are the problems that some of these entities who are really into interoperability and really willing to work toward a truly interoperable world face. Like we just were talking about how from a technology standpoint, these things are, it's largely solved. And we talked about the difficulties of the business case there. If you were just going to roll probably a lot of complexity up into a couple of key points, like what are the big issues that are currently facing partners who are really into the interoperability idea? Like what do they need right now? What are they trying to solve for? I think partners are trying to solve for for value and outcomes. You know, things you can actually do to make healthcare better, to actually reduce the cost and improve the quality of care and improve outcomes for people. Really being able to bring those pieces together and also translate it into action that can actually be achieved. That's really, really tough. I think there's also an increased focus, like we were talking about before, of health equity and addressing the social determinants of health. So figuring out how to combine in a meaningful way clinical and non-clinical healthcare, non-healthcare data sets to, again, find some signal to action. So I think we, we have a lot of work to do there, a lot of work to make sure that data is getting to the right people at the right time. It's not doing that today. So if someone is interested in learning more about Civitas, where would you direct them? Yeah, so we actually have a our annual conference coming up in August. It is August 21st to the 24th in San Antonio or also available on our virtual platform. Our entire theme of the conference is around data collaborative and health equity and how our member organizations are really moving things in this space. So I would certainly recommend attending our conference if you can, and also checking out our public events. We have events that are called Collaborative in Action, and we make those available on our website, which is civitasforhealth.org. Civitas for number four, health? F-O-R health.org. Aha, not the number four, civitasforhealth.org. Lisa Berry, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you so much for having me. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.